Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review. This week, we present the first of two special episodes that celebrate some of the best programming presented on WLPN in 2018. From all of us at Lumpen Radio, happy holidays and best wishes for the new year. We kick off this special edition with an unreleased track from Feline, recorded live in Studio B.
Chicago author and educator Eve Ewing stopped by to dish on her life and her work. She chatted with Jamie Trecker. Right now, as part of the Lumpen Buddies program, I am pleased to welcome into the studio uh, one of Chicago's finest people and a true buddy to oh, us. Oh, thank you. Dr. Eve Ewing. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you great. so much. Thank you for being here with us. We appreciate it so much. It's It's been a minute, literally, since you've been on Lumpen Radio. <laughs> um, we're here today. Eve, first of all, you know, I think about you uh, in the sports terms, I would call you a multi-tool player. Uh, oh, you know, you, you do a lot of things. Can you tell our listeners uh, what how you think of yourself as? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think of myself as a writer, as scholar, and a cultural organizer. And uh, really what I'm trying to do is use all the possible tools at my disposal to have fun, use imagination to imagine a better world, and um, ask difficult questions about why the world is the way it is. And really because I want to just make Chicago better. Do you consider yourself an activist as well? That's a tough question. I I usually don't consider myself an activist because I think that in order to claim that term, the the bar should be a little higher than it is for some people. So sometimes I get called an activist for doing things that I would classify as just like being a decent human being. Mm -hmm. Um, I identify as an organizer, as a cultural organizer, which means that um, I am trying to think about ways to use space and culture and art to uh, change the political landscape, um, similar to, for example, a community radio station. I would call that a, a form of, of cultural organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do engage in activism sometimes. You know, I, I go to protests and I raise money for things that I, that I think are important. But I, I really think that those are just like decent person, active citizen things. Right. Totally understand. And you now have a new book out. It's out from the University of Chicago Press. It's called Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. This obviously is a, a hot button issue in yeah, this town is. as well. Um, first of all, how did you get involved in this this particular project. Yeah, so um, the 2013 school closings, which as as folks listening probably know, uh, was the largest mass public school closure in the nation's history in Chicago. Um, We had closed uh, 50 schools all at the same time in one big wave. And that happened while I was in graduate school. Um, And I had been a CPS teacher, and I was really dismayed to see that the school uh, where I had taught was closed and was being closed. And um, I was really shocked, and people started asking me, you know, why is this happening? Uh, what What's the rationale behind it? And I felt that I didn't have a clear narrative to answer that, and that the narrative that was being put forth by people in power didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I set out uh, trying to answer that question. And what I found was that, um, you know, there was this big debate in 2013 where people were like, the school closings are racist, and people in power said, no, they're not. Um, it just so happens that all these schools are the schools where black kids live. And so um, in setting out to kind of answer that question, I really ended up diving deep into a lot of the history of why our city is the way it is and the role that race and racism have played in in creating the landscape that we know now. Yeah. And the schools, as you as you point out, uh, the schools are predominantly on in African-American right. territory in the city. And the city, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody who listens to this radio station or lives in Chicago. This city is, of course, profoundly segregated mm-hmm. and remains profoundly segregated. What was... The rationale put forth by CPS and Mayor Rahm Emanuel for closing these schools in the first place? So there were a few different um, things that they tried. First, it was, uh, well, we're going to save money. So we need to save money and, and to, to save the budget. Um, we're going to close schools. And then there were all kinds of analyses that showed that they would not, in fact, save any money by doing this. And then what they settled on was this idea of underutilization. So they said, well, um, there are schools that can fit large numbers of students, and uh, those schools are pretty empty. And so 
so we need to close them to help the students. Um, and the idea was that the students would be sent to academically more su- superior schools, um, even though uh, there's actually already prior to that was a body of research that said, um, for the most part, students who uh, experience school closure do not see academic gains, partially because the city is so segregated. And so schools that are struggling are clustered close together. So if your school closes and you end up going to another school that's a mile away, that school um, more often than not is academically um identical to the school that was closed, nearly identical, um, and faces a lot of the same struggles. So um, what really interested me, though, was this idea of building underutilization, right? Because as an educator, um, the idea that we should measure a school's quality by how many kids it can fit in the building and whether it's the most efficient use of space is not really an educational value. Uh, that's not an educational value that, that most people would choose for their own children. In fact, people like to send their kids to schools where they have lots of space and small class sizes, right? Um, but when it comes to poor black kids, then all of a sudden it's like, how many can we cram into this re- classroom? And so um, a lot of the book is really dealing with this underutilization idea said with heavy scare quotes um, and and really kind of taking that apart. Did, did people actually take that seriously? Because as you point out, I mean, most parents want to send their kids to small classes and small classrooms and more attention from teachers. Yeah. I mean, the sad thing is that, um, you know, Chicago, uh, the segregation of the city is very is playing out um, ferociously in the schools. So Chicago is about a third white and CPS is about nine percent white students. So by and large, um, white families have have divested from the system. And what it means is that you can have these headlines that uh, talk about, you know, this is what's best for the schools and the schools are struggling. And even well-meaning people who have never actually been in inside these school buildings tend to pretty much believe this narrative if it's coming from the mayor because they don't have any kind of counter evidence. Um, And uh, also because to many of them, it's easier and more palatable to listen to what the mayor or what Barbara Bird Bennett, the the superintendent, was saying um, than to listen to, you know, protesters. Something that we've been talking about a lot this year is this idea of civility versus protest, right? And that um, protesters are seen as uncivil. Um, Why don't they just go about things the right way? And uh, of course, parents of, of students impacted by school closures spend a lot of time trying to go about things the quote unquote right way, right? And when you see people protesting, it's because no one has listened to them. So I think all of those things play into the fact that unfortunately, um, the mayor was able very effectively to convince a lot of people that that this was real. Um, and of course, the people who knew better uh, were often not really given a voice to say otherwise. But if, if uh, it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me, if the, it That's wasn't- That's because you save- have logic, James. <laughs> Thoughtfulness. If it wasn't saving money and it wasn't improving student outcomes, why were these schools being closed then? What was the point? That's that's a really great question. Um, And I I really, you know, I'm not going to psychoanalyze the mayor. Um, oh, please do. I, I would, you know, I would if I if I wondered why he does the things he does and why he thinks these ideas are good. Uh, you know, I would I wouldn't ever sleep at night. Um, but I think that uh, there was a way that it just it was like they started a car 
and they just had to keep going until they drove off a cliff, right? Off mm-hmm. of a cliff. It was mm-hmm. like the idea was that we're going to shut it all down and start over. And I do think that there's a kind of logic in saying, okay, if we have a lot of schools that are really struggling, I see the logic in saying we just need a clean slate. But the problem is that um, there was no sense of requiring any meaningful participation or voice or uh, incorporating pushback from the people that were actually impacted by that. And so it's almost as if, you know, um, my husband and I share an office. And, you know, it's like if I walked in and I was like, his desk is messy. My desk is messy. This office is a mess. You know, I'm just going to just throw everything away. And we're, and without actually asking the person who shares an office with me. And so it's not just that the schools were closed. It's not just about that decision, but this process of, of really excluding people from having a meaningful seat at the table. And I think that part of the reason why I wrote this book is that I think that, that that issue is not just about schools. I think that in Chicago, we live in a profoundly undemocratic city, right? And we live in a city where whether it's transportation or public housing or mental health services or schools or health care, um, many of us feel excluded from the processes uh, uh, that, that politically empower us to make decisions about our own lives. And I think that that is something that has the potential to change. And so I, I hope that just talking about the schools as one example of that kind of catalyzes people. Although I do think that the schools are an especially egregious example um, because the mayor does unilaterally appoint um, the head of the schools as well as every member of the school board. And of course, we're the only um, district in Illinois where that is the case. We didn't, And so I think Chicagoans deserve to elect the people that, that make decisions about our schools. Um, but the mayor also unilaterally appoints the person who runs public housing, the person who runs the police department, right? And these are some of the institutions that shape the lives of the most vulnerable citizens in the city. And so how and why do, you know, how, how can we push for a voice for ourselves in these decisions? You know, the narrative also is that the Chicago public schools, to not put too fine a point on it, are garbage. Yeah, and, the worst in the nation, right. we famously and, said yeah, in the and, 80s. And, uh, of course, we're also uh, a crime-ridden hellhole if right. you listen to certain leaders um, right. who I won't name. That narrative, I think you also puncture as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the, the idea that the public schools are a, a death trap is simply not true. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. I mean, there's a it's a not so subtle dog whistling. I mean, you know, William Bennett, who was the former secretary of education, famously called CPS the worst schools in the nation. Um, and that was echoed more recently by uh, our, our governor, Bruce Rauner. It's hard to even call somebody a governor when they don't really do the bare minimum to govern, but um, be that as it may. Um, our elected governor. Our elected, <laughs> our, our quote unquote governor, Bruce Rauner, um, who said that the schools were like prisons. And um, the thing is, is that that plays off of um, stereotypes for people who the last time that they saw a glimpse of a public school is when they saw Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer, right? right. And in our whole, w- there's a whole industry that uh, kind of paints these schools as this battleground um, in entertainment, in mass media. Um, I do think it's important to recognize that our schools do face real struggles. Um, right, like last year in Chicago, uh, a number of schools failed public health inspection, for example, right? right? And uh, we found that students uh, were going to school with rodent feces, with roaches, right, with spoiled milk. Now, how did that happen? It happened because we gave a privatized janitorial contract to Aramark so that now we're paying them millions upon millions of dollars to not do the bare minimum of mopping the floor, taking out the trash. And, you know, teachers have talked about saying that they feel shame going into their school because they're ashamed that the school is filthy. And they can only, you know, you can only do so much as a teacher trying to do industrial level cleaning of a building that houses hundreds of people. So that's just one example of how 
even the ways in which our schools are really truly struggling like no I don't want to send my kid to a school where there's garbage overflowing or it smells like like spoiled milk or they're going to see a mouse or a rat I don't want that for anybody's child but that is not an indictment of the people there right that's an indictment of the power structure that has condemned them to say this is good enough for you it's not good enough for me or my kid but it's good enough for you and and I think also the schools a lot of the struggles that the schools face are really reflective of the struggles of our city. We have huge, massive waves of unemployment, right? We have uh, a mayor who shut down our mental health centers, right? We have people who can't get basic health care. Um, I took a student uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, to get some to, to get some glasses, right? And uh, she's somebody that my that I that I mentor, and she was always squinting. I said, "Well, what do you do about this?" She said, "Well, I just sit in the front of the room, right? This is basic stuff. This is a brilliant kid, and she's not able to just read." the board right and so these are the basics are our kids full are their bellies full when they go to school right. do their parents have jobs do their parents have space and time off to care for them and help them with their homework do they have a safe and affordable place to go to sleep at night right we have huge amounts of homelessness in CPS so all of these things um, can make the school seem like pretty bad places because they're one of the few public institutions that are actually facing up to the realities of this when many aspects of the rest of the city would rather brush it under the rug we could talk about this for hours, but you know we don't have all the time in the world. I did want to ask you one kind of final question. It strikes me that when schools close down, it, it devastates not just the students, but the whole neighborhood. Yes. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think that um, – so when CPS closed the schools, uh, they decided that they were going to sell the buildings on the private market. And like everything else in Chicago, that became a very um, shady and bizarre process. First, they said that the aldermen were in charge. Then the aldermen said, OK, well, we don't know how we're supposed to make this decision. And then it was the board, right? And um, the sad thing is, is that people in communities who have to walk by these vacant buildings every single day, it's just another reminder of what the city thinks of you, right? Uh, that a place that for you might have been a place of amazing memories, friendship, coming of age, a place where maybe not only you, but your siblings, your cousins, your grandmother even went to school, um, is now a, a condemned building, um, is, is a reminder of the level of disregard with which the city uh, treats you. And the other thing that to me is really heartbreaking, and I, I wrote about this as well in another article is that um, the people who have the greatest amount of desire for those buildings have the least amount of capital to to bring those desires to life. And the people who have the, the most amount of capital um, don't have any desires or dreams for the building. So a lot of those buildings uh, five years later are still unsold because surprise, surprise, uh, venture capitalists are not actually lining up to buy school buildings in neighborhoods that have faced historical amounts of disinvestment. Um, shock that these are not considered desirable commodities on the private real estate market. Meanwhile, a kid walking by there every single day might look at his own school building and think, man, it would be really great if I could get in there and, you know, have a recording studio or a community space or take some drawing classes or if my little sister could get daycare there. Um, but those folks don't have the capital to make those things happen. So it's, it's really a shame. Yeah. Dr. Eve Ewing, her new book is Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. It is available from the University of Chicago Press. That's More information is at uh, press.uchicago.edu. It's not uchicago.com. It's .edu. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us Thank here. We you, really appreciate Jamie. it. I appreciate you. Eve will be in the latest issue of Lumpen Magazine as one of our Lumpen buddies. Aww. <laughs> Ida y Vuelta played new music just for us on Contratiempo, live in Studio B.
do a show about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on... Oh, are you okay? Oh, my God. Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I got to do. You have no idea how much stuff... What the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans gets their identities took. Size Matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Size Matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. Cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty IPA. I wanted to try Hello, good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter and the not... The jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring uh, in the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't nag him on. Explain yourself, imposter. Speak! Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it to me. does. Jess, what the... Ow. Hey, not cool. Then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, social security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. Well, what about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Uh, hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. Just my suitcase. Calm down, down I can't Kyle. use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I gotta do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using Kyle's uh, info? About 30 years. Whoa. <laughs> Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're gonna kill this middle thing. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're gonna confront them. I gotta go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Ah, crud. The battery on the portable recorder's about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Alive. Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. 
Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually, completely. Now, it just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope. My dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is... Then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? This week, on a special year-end edition of the Trump Diaries, the markets crash and Trump blames the Fed, Jim Mattis quits and Trump kicks him on the way out. But first, what happened in 2018 with Donald Trump? The government shut down three times. The government is currently shut down. The current shutdown is likely to last until the Democrats take over in 2019. This shutdown is over Trump's insistence on what he calls a beautiful wall on the southern border. Trump saw a Democratic wave sweep the House with the opposition picking up 40 seats. Republicans held the Senate and padded their margin slightly. Trump got a second man confirmed to the Supreme Court after a bruising confirmation fight for Brett Kavanaugh. The economy moved toward recession as Trump's trade wars and tariffs began to spook markets. Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and withdrew troops from Syria and began to withdraw them from Afghanistan, drawing cheers from Turkey and Russia. Trump also presided over the gutting of long-standing environmental rules and began to sell off public land. Trump separated children from their families at the border, warehousing tens of thousands of children. Two children have died in custody. 33 people have either been indicted or pled guilty in Robert Mueller's investigation into collusion between Trump and Russia. That probe shows no signs of wrapping up. And hate crimes reach new highs with one man sending bombs to prominent liberals. And the UN listing the USA as dangerous for journalists for the first time ever. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 701, December 21st. The United States government shut down as Trump and lawmakers failed to agree on a stopgap funding measure. Trump insists on $5 billion for a wall, which is a non-starter. The shutdown is now likely to last into 2019. Trump had called for Mitch McConnell to end policy filibusters and tweeted that the border wall is as important as the wheel. Quote, there is nothing better because I understand technology on a border better than anyone. Markets continued to swoon, with the Dow suffering its worst week since the financial crisis in 2018. The Nasdaq entered a bear market, and the S&P 500 is down nearly 20%. Trump suddenly ordered a full and rapid withdrawal of all 2,000 U.S. troops from Syria within 30 days, catching his own Pentagon and allies by surprise. Pentagon officials trying to talk Trump out of the decision, saying the move through our Kurdish allies who fought against American troops in Syria under the bus. But, said one official, the president said, quote, everybody out. The move apparently followed a phone call with Turkish President Erdogan, who asked why troops were assisting an organization they consider terrorists. Trump responded, quote, you're right, you can have it. Trump subsequently tweeted, we have defeated ISIS in Syria, and the U.S., quote, doesn't want to be the policeman of the Middle East. And the Trump administration will force asylum seekers to stay in Mexico. Homeland Security Secretary Kirstjen Nielsen announced the decision, saying, quote, catch and release will be replaced with catch and return. 
The change came after negotiations with Mexico, which had previously refused to warehouse the migrants, who are largely from Central America, not Mexico. The acting Attorney General, Matthew Whitaker, said he will not recuse himself from the Russian investigation, despite the Ethics Department telling him he should. While there is apparently no legal conflict of interest, the Ethics Department said Whitaker should stand aside due to his previous criticism of the investigation. Trump's pick for Attorney General criticized Mueller's obstruction of justice investigation in an unsolicited memo. That nominee, William Barr, wrote that Mueller's obstruction theory is fatally misconceived. Legal experts disagree with Barr's take, noting that if Barr's theory was taken to its logical end, no corrupt officer of the law could be prosecuted. Together, those two developments raised an alarm on Capitol Hill, with even members of the Republican Party noting that Barr and Whitaker appear to have been selected to shield Trump from the Russian investigation. And a Florida man started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to pay for Trump's border wall. The man, Brian Colfage, said that if the 63 million Americans who voted for Trump would donate $80 apiece, that wall could be built. So far, the campaign has raised $8.3 million. And Trump shared a video of himself reenacting the Green Acres theme song that took place during the 2005 Emmy Awards alongside Megan Mullally. The occasion was his signing of an $867 billion farm bill that will provide aid to U.S. farmers hurt by his administration's trade war with China. Day 702, December 22nd. Defense Secretary James Mattis abruptly resigned. The Defense Secretary said his views, quote, aren't aligned with Trump in a scathing letter that implicitly criticized Trump's foreign policy. The move rattled lawmakers who had called Mattis the adult in the room and left people wondering if worse was to come from an increasingly unmoored and uncontrolled Trump. Trump responded by firing Mattis and then replacing him with his deputy on January 1st, as opposed to a previously agreed upon end of February. And in a sprawling and heavily stage-managed press conference, Vladimir Putin praised Trump's decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria, saying, quote, Donald is correct. He also said that the United Kingdom, quote, had to carry out Brexit because otherwise democracy is meaningless. Russian propaganda agents also meddled in the United Kingdom's Brexit debate and vote. The House Intelligence Committee sent transcripts of its 2017 interview with Roger Stone to Robert Mueller, indicating the special counsel is close to charging Stone with a crime. Stone's relationship with WikiLeaks and his foreknowledge of the hack of the Democratic National Committee's emails have made him a focus of Mueller for several months. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg underwent surgery to remove two cancerous nodules from her lung. The nodules were malignant, but, quote, there was no evidence of any remaining disease following the surgery. Ginsburg has already returned to work. The United States was added to a list of the most dangerous countries for journalists for the first time ever. At least 63 professional American journalists were killed doing their jobs in 2018. Day 703, December 23rd. The Supreme Court rejected the Trump administration's request to automatically reject asylum bids by immigrants who illegally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. Federal immigration law says people may apply for asylum whether or not at a designated port of arrival and irrespective of alien status. The Trump policy wanted to make all asylum claims to be made at official ports of entry. Trump, raging over the stock market swoon he has tied his presidency to, asked if he could fire Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Trump has called Powell, quote, the worst mistake I have ever made and blames Powell's rate rises for the market crash. That news spooked the markets further, leading Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin to tweet a statement from the president, quote, I totally disagree with Fed policy, but I never suggested firing Chairman Jay Powell, nor do I believe I have the right to do so. 
Also, Mnuchin said he had made calls to the top executives at six major banks and assured consumers, quote, they have ample liquidity available for lending to consumer, business markets, and all other market operations. Mnuchin said the executives added that they have not experienced any clearance or margin issues and that the markets continue to function properly. That unusual phone call apparently an attempt to stabilize markets raised an eyebrow, as such calls were only made when the Treasury is worrying about impending financial collapse. Trump is furious over new Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. A two-year-old video surfaced in which Mulvaney calls Trump, quote, a terrible human being. He also called Trump's view on a border wall absurd and almost childish. Trump wants to tighten work requirements for Americans who receive food stamps. The new rule would stop states from issuing work waivers unless a city or county has an unemployment rate of 7% or higher. The program, which serves roughly 40 million Americans, already requires recipients to have some form of employment. Day 704, December 24th. Stocks plunged again with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling 653 points following Trump's tweets attacking the Federal Reserve. Mnuchin's calls to the six major banks in an attempt to stem a panic had the opposite effect. This could be the worst December for stocks since 1931. Meanwhile, Trump declared in all caps that America is respected again during a four-hour Twitter tirade as leaders of both parties accused the president of plunging the country into chaos on Christmas Eve. Trump aired familiar grievances, including complaints about funds for border security, Jay Powell, Democrats critical of his relationship with American allies, Brett McGurk, who is the departing special envoy for the coalition fighting ISIS. He also showed little sign of reflection, even lamenting at one point, I am all alone, poor me. And Trump apparently told a seven-year-old child visiting the White House that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Trump said, quote, are you still a believer in Santa because at seven it's marginal, right? Trump is known to dislike Christmas. Aides say he doesn't like the holiday because the focus is not on him. Day 705, Christmas Day. Trump spent Christmas stewing about the border wall and then launched into an unprompted attack on James Comey in front of reporters at the White House. Trump claimed without evidence that, quote, many federal workers have said to me, communicated, stay out until you get the funding for the wall. He then claimed falsely both that the wall was already being built and that it could either be renovated or brand new by election day. Trump closed by saying, quote, it's a disgrace what's happening in this country, but other than that, I wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Day 706, December 26th. Trump made a surprise trip to Iraq, his first visit to troops stationed abroad in a combat zone. Accompanied by his wife, he was slated to visit some of the 5,000 troops in that nation. Trump, of course, recently called for an abrupt withdrawal of troops from Syria and Afghanistan. Trump defended his controversial decision to leave Syria, saying, quote, we're no longer the suckers, folks. Our presence in Syria was not open-ended. It was never intended to be permanent. Eight years ago, we went there for three months and we never left. I said, nope, nope, I gave you a lot of six months, and now we're doing it a different way. Two daughters of a deceased podiatrist said their late father diagnosed Trump with bone spurs to help him avoid serving the Vietnam War. Their father rented property from Trump's father, Fred Trump, and said they did it for Fred Trump as a favor. Another podiatrist, also a renter, aided as well. Trump's deferment from the Vietnam War was questionable at the time as he had been a star athlete at Fordham. Another child has died in detention at the U.S. border. An eight-year-old boy from Guatemala died in custody after hospital staffers diagnosed the child with a common cold and when evaluated for release, a fever. The boy died later that evening after suffering nausea and vomiting. Trump has been outraged at his acting attorney general, angered that federal prosecutors referenced Trump's actions and crimes his former lawyer Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to. Trump said the prosecutors Matthew Whitaker oversees filed charges that make him look bad. 
And with breathtaking chutzpah, lawyers for Trump used the government shutdown to seek a delay in a court case over claims that Trump is illegally profiting from his Washington hotel. Attorneys representing Trump asked a federal appeals court to postpone indefinitely all further filings in a case involving the Emoluments Clause because the Justice Department is closed. Trump's turnover at the White House has reached record proportions. 65% of his staff has departed. There are 754 days to go in Trump's first term. These are the Trump Diaries. The Ponderers chatted with Terry Genderbender, the lead singer of Les Boucherettes and frequent collaborator with the Melvins. Terry chatted about feminism in rock, life on the road, and their pride in being a Mexican-American rock star. So just to give you a little bit of context, I just chopped it up to show to where she's talking about um, the stuff that she was going through before starting this new recording. And she talks about the video where she dresses as a warrior. And then she just talks a little bit about other stuff. So it's a, it's a quick interview, just a few you know, highlights of it. And then after we'll listen to a song. She will be here on Saturday at Taste of Chicago with Flaming Lips and Half Gringa, who's joining us in studio in a few minutes. So let's take a listen to this interview. And the first question to her was like, what was your state of mind? What were you thinking about? How did this recording go? Enjoy. This is The Ponderers with Terry Gender Bender. Have you worked through this, through the music, or are you still like exploring what you want to do about it? Oh, definitely working through it with the music because it lets me, it leads me to get it out of my shell. Like, for example, because of the music, I, you know, I've, I've been able to find another musical family to to, to play my songs with and, and rehearse together with and thus you know, going on tour together. So it's a, that's the nice part where I'm out of my shell and surrounded by, you know, by, by my musical brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And... And then um, now we're taking it to the next step where I'm actually using the music and, and, and the experiences as an, a, a perfect excuse to look for, for help. Like I'm looking into advocacy treatment centers to try to understand more my genetic tree and, and, and just meet other different people with the, that are going through the same issues, which is having mental health issues and family. And, and talk, finding dialogue to talk about instead of ignoring that elephant in the tree. Right. Or in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) The elephant in the room. (laughs) The video for Spider and Waves. You're in a warrior outfit, and you've mentioned it's in honor of your grandmother. Can you tell me about that? It was really interesting because I found this out recently uh, when my mother was younger and her brothers, my, my, what would you say, grand-uncles and grand-aunts, they would have a ceremony and a custom and a once a, week, a month basis, they, where they dress up in their traditional Chichimecan uh, costumes, or their, and 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 just thank thank God for everything that they that they found each other, that their spirits found each other within the family circle. So, and my mother and my grandmother was the percussionist with the with the with the, uh, the leather skin over the drum beat, and she keep the the beat. So I thought, like, that's insane. I just recently found this out. So music has been, in a way, part of, you know, my bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes me proud. And Because, and, 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 yeah, there's lots of things where lately in the dialogue is there's things where we're ashamed of, of our culture, where people say, oh, well, I'm ashamed to be this or that. 
but I'll, I'll make it better. I think it's also good to have that dialogue where we're, we're proud of our, our cultures and, and, and celebrate the differences of what makes our culture special. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a positive way, you know, which could always be taken in a negative way. You know, like, oh, what about all these paintings in the museums, you know, with the politically incorrect titles, blah, blah, blah. You know, we need to take them down. But I think, you know, history, that's what history is there for, you know, for us to look back on and, and learn to not to repeat the same things in the future or, or repeat the things that we want to be repeated, depending on what it shows, yeah. what works. In the video, I also noticed, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, there's this calmness when you see the shadows of the uh, uh, musicians playing, and then there's the euphoria of you dancing and stuff. Was that intentional? Oh, that, that's, that's awesome that you noticed that. That's, that was definitely uh, talked about before, before the liner notes of the, uh, with the director, that um, what basically want, we wanted to transmit a feeling of, of disconnection with other people and, and, and sometimes they represent like these shadowy strangers that even though they're supposed to be your family and everything and you see them as a stranger or your empty lonely feeling so a lot of your songs obviously are you know anthems of empowerment for many of us what is one song that you can tell me that is that for you oh my lord okay for me mm-hmm. damn i think it's it's um well recently it's secret joven and, and, and not biased. I'm not biased. Okay, I, 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 I'm featured in this song, but it has nothing to do with me. I swear. The great joven on this bag, okay. and it's an anthem that I've been having stuck in my head. I mean, I just turned 29 recently, so you know, it's like you know, the age does not define you. All right, nope. people that are ages. Oh, well, it does define you into some sort, but not you know, you know, it shouldn't restrict you. Right. So that's what I love about Alice Bag's song. You know, like it, it turns a dollar ninety nine cent dollar store, and there's some women behind her snickering behind, saying, "Oh, look, she's too old to have blue hair. What the hell? Who does she think she is?" And that's how the song starts. And then all of a sudden, it breaks up to this beautiful musical ballad of, "Oh yeah, they can they can think all oh, of me they want. I'm still gonna be me." I don't know. It's really cool. It made me cry. Lumpin' Radio aired a special simulcast of a reenactment of the Nixon-Kennedy debate in 1960. Presented by the Illinois Humanities at the Arts Club of Chicago, these are excerpts from this historic debate. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliate stations are proud to provide facilities for discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. According to the rules set forth by the candidates themselves, each man shall give an opening statement of approximately eight minutes duration and a closing statement of approximately three minutes duration. In between, the candidates will answer or comment upon answers to questions put by a panel of correspondents. In this, the first discussion in a series of four joint appearances, the subject matter, it has been agreed, will be restricted to internal or domestic American matters. Now for the first opening statement by Senator John F. Kennedy. Mr. Smith, Mr. Nixon, in the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln said, 
The question was whether this nation could exist half slave or half free. In the election of 1960, within the world around us, the question is whether the world will exist half slave and half free. Whether it will move in the direction of freedom, in the direction of the road that we are taking, or whether it will move in the direction of slavery. I think it will depend in great measure on what we do here in the United States, on what kind of society that we build, on the kind of strength that we maintain. Now, Senator Kennedy's opening statement, as I said, lasted for eight minutes, and we will not have him deliver the full eight-minute statement. <laughs> Instead, I will tell you that he will go on to talk about the ways in which, in his belief, the United States is not fully living up to its promise. He will call out the country for its economic inequalities and for its racial inequalities as well. But he will say that the United States is uniquely positioned to be both an innovator and a leader in the world. He will say that it's not enough for individuals to be responsible or for the states to be responsible, but instead he calls for a national responsibility. Senator Kennedy. In 1933, Franklin Roosevelt said in his inaugural, that this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. I think our generation of Americans has the same rendezvous. The question now is can freedom be maintained under the most severe attack it has ever known? I think it can. And I think in the final analysis it depends upon what we do here. I think it is time for America to start moving again. And now the opening statement by Vice President Richard M. Nixon. Mr. Smith, Senator Kennedy, the things that Senator Kennedy has said, many of us can agree with. There is no question that we cannot discuss our internal affairs in the United States without recognizing that they have tremendous bearing on our internal positions, international positions. There is no question but that this nation cannot stand still because we are in a deadly competition, a competition not only with the men in the Kremlin, but the men in Peking. We are ahead in this competition, as Senator Kennedy, I think, has implied. But when you are in a race, the only way to stay ahead is to move ahead. I subscribe completely to that spirit Senator Kennedy has expressed. The spirit of that the United States should move ahead. Where then do we disagree? Nos presentamos. Somos los Mirlos. En Contratiempo Radio. Lupe Radio. de clima tropical, tierra caliente del oriente peruano, somos los milón de clima tropical, tierra caliente del oriente peruano, 
Y cuando quieras te llevaré para bailar, para gozar Y cuando quieras te llevaré para bailar, para gozar Somos los virlos, nos gusta el río y la belleza que adorna nuestra selva Somos los virlos, chicos peruanos, no gusta el monte que engalana nuestra tierra Pura selva, pura selva, vamos. Y las palmas arriba, las palmas arriba, vamos. De Perú para Chicago, Lumba en Radio. Siempre contigo Somos los milos de clima tropical Tierra caliente del oriente peruano Somos los milos de clima tropical Tierra caliente del oriente peruano Y cuando quieras te llevaré Para bailar, para gozar Y cuando quieras te llevaré Para bailar, para gozar Somos los milos no gusta el río y su belleza que adorna nuestra selva Somos los mirlos, chicos peruanos No gusta el monte que engalana nuestra tierra Los mirlos para el Perú y el mundo Y para Chicago En Rayo Lupin The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Schellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.